Well, before we get into Matthew chapter 1, I've got several Star Wars tra- uh, spoilers that I would like to share. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> just like the ruined movies for me. Um, Seriously, Matthew chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning, and uh, be sure to be back with us tonight as we uh, have our candlelight service, as we sing more Christmas carols and, uh, and have that awesome time together, and, um, and we're going to have the Lord's Supper here in just a little bit. If you're, um, if you're a guest with us this morning, you should have a connection card hopefully there in your worship guide, and we would love um, for you to fill that out at some point during the service, and when we dismiss today, you can just leave that in your seat, and we'll collect that when we're done, and it just gives us a way to pray for you and, uh, and to send you a note and to thank you for your visit, all right? And so Matthew chapter 1 is where we're at this morning, and we have been looking the last couple of weeks especially uh, at the genealogy of Jesus and in Matthew 1. And last week, we talked about how we can see the faithfulness of God on display through the genealogy of Jesus. And this week, we're going to talk about the grace of God on display in the genealogy of Jesus. And the, the reason we know that Jesus came to earth, the reason we have Christmas, right, the reason the Son of God took on human flesh is to save sinners, right? That's, that's, the, that's the big deal. He came to seek and save that which was lost, amen? And so if that's the bottom line this morning, that sinners need saving, we understand that the only way sinners can be saved, and we spent a lot of time as a church family this year, in Romans talking about this is by God's grace. And so it's not a surprise, or it shouldn't be, when we read this list of names in Matthew 1 that we see God's grace on display because Jesus came uh, full of grace and truth and to be the fullest expression of us, to us, of the grace of God. And so this this name, this list of names that we're going to see here in Matthew 1 again this morning Everyone on the list is, is a sinner, except for Jesus. He's the only name on the list without sin. And so God, loving us, has sent his son into a family of sinners to save for himself a family of sinners made righteous by Jesus Christ. And that's the wonderful story of Christmas. So look with me, Matthew chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, and then I'm going to skip down, and I'm going to read uh, verse 16. Matthew chapter 1, here we go. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now look with me down at verse 16. It goes through more names, and we get in verse 12. We talk about the time of the deportation, and then it leads up to verse 16 to a man named Jacob. And it says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. If you were to really take a, a good look at this names and do just a, a big character sketch on all of them, you, you would find, if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, that, man, this seems like a weird list of names for the genealogy of Jesus. I mean, it's like there's a lot of names that just feel like they, they, they don't fit, and they probably feel like they don't fit, right? They, they, kind of, they probably feel like a fish out of water on a list like this. It's kind of like opening up the book of Hebrews chapter 11 and seeing you're listed in the hall of faith, and you're like, really? I don't know. I don't feel like I, I fit. Have you, ever, have you ever had that experience before of kind of feeling like I don't fit, feeling like I, I don't belong? 
I have that experience quite often. I don't know if you have that experience, but I have that experience quite often. I had it earlier this year. I shared with you earlier this year that I went deep sea uh, fishing for the very first time. What I didn't share with you is I about ruined the boat while I went deep sea fishing for the first time. I remember we were out there. There's four of us, right? And so there's the guy that owns the boat, so he knows a lot about what's going on. There's a guy who does charters for a living, so he knows a whole lot about what's going on. Then there's my friend who got me on this little trip, and, and he goes several times a year. And, and then there's me. And I had never been deep sea fishing. This was all new to me. And we were out there. I guess we had lines in the water about 10 minutes. And I had tangled my line into the motor. Fortunately for us, there were two motors. Um, and also fortunately for us, we were, they were able to get that untangled. But l- let me just say this. I was not the most popular guy on the boat right? And uh, the guy that, that, that was untangling it, uh, he was really unhappy with me. And at that moment in his life, he could care less that I was a pastor. Um, and, uh, and so it, I, I felt, I just kind of wanted to disappear, right? And my friend looked over at me and he said, hey, hey, Josh. I said, yeah. He said, this is how I feel on a golf course. And I said, I, I think I get what your point is because I don't feel real comfortable there either. But he, he was, you know, I, I felt like a fish out of water, right? And so we've all had those experiences. And, and that can be true spiritually as well. And, but what we're going to see here is this is not a, a list of, you, you would think, right, lineage of the Messiah, you think like line of the spiritually elite, right, or something like that, some sort of pure bloodline kind of thing. But what we see here is, man, there's some ragtag folks in this, and every person in this is flawed in some way other than Jesus because that's who, he, he came to save sinners. and He came into a broken world and into a broken family. And when you look at li- this list, there's lots of names, well, well First of all, when you look at Abraham and David and you see them on the list, you go, well, they belong, right? Even though they're imperfect, and we'll talk about that, you think they belong, because you know God gave them direct promises, right? They're like on the Mount Rushmore, if, uh, you know, uh, of the Old Testament. Abraham and David and Moses, those guys make the list, right? But, but some of these names, you're like, man, there's wicked kings on here. There's Gentiles on this list. This is a Jewish Messiah, and there's Gentiles on the list. There's immoral people on the list. I mean, even David committed not only immorality, but murder. Some people that did some shady stuff. And then there's five women on the list. And in, this, in our day, we don't think anything about that. But in their day, that was highly unusual. You just did not list women in the genealogy. You just listed the men. And so you say, well, he didn't list all the women. He only listed five. Why did he choose those five? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning. Because I think he chose to list those five so that we would think about their stories and to remind us of the grace of God. But there's other names on the list that are going to do that as well we're going to see this morning. So let's just kind of walk through, the, first of all, just these five women that are on this list. The first woman's name that you'll come to there in verse 3 is Tamar. Her story is found over in Genesis chapter 38, verses 12 through 30. And it, it's, it's a pretty twisted story. It's, it's, a, it's a dark story. It's a difficult story, honestly, to read. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah. And Judah's son, her husband, died, so she was a widow. And his brother was supposed to take her as his wife and have a child with her. That was the way they did things in that day. Um, That was the way of carrying on the name of the brother, but also taking care of the wife and family and protecting rights. And there was a lot tied into that. But ultimately, he failed to do this. He rebelled in this area, and God ultimately struck him dead for his disobedience. So Judah, her father-in-law, promised that when his youngest son was of age, he would, he would, he would allow her to be, him to be her suitor, and they would marry, and, and she could have a child with him. And then when that time came, he refused to do that. He just looked right over Tamar, and Tamar obviously became upset, broken, angry. And so she went and she waited for Judah 
uh, at the gate of the city one day dressed as a prostitute and deceived him into sleeping with her, and she got pregnant by her father-in-law, and that's where you get the names Perez and Zerah. So in summary, Tamar is a widow who is mistreated, and to get her rights that were deprived her, she uses deception and immorality. And Judah, who's also on this list, is a man who lied to and denied rights to his daughter-in-law who went looking for a prostitute and ended up in immorality with his daughter-in-law. So what is this beginning? I mean, are these things that we share about our family? Would you share that one of your relatives was a father-in-law that mistook his daughter-in-law for a prostitute? Or that one of them was a daughter-in-law that dressed up like one to seduce her father-in-law to get her rights? See... God shares these names in the lineage of Jesus. Why? Because these are exactly the kind of people Jesus came to save and the kind of jacked up stories that Jesus came to work in the midst of. Jesus came for liars and immoral, messed up, confused, sinful people like us. And this story, her story, Judah's story reminds us of that. You know, at one point in the story, if you go back and read it, Judah was going to actually have her burned before her immorality until he realized what he had done and who she was. And she goes from almost dead to being in the genealogy of Jesus. And it's just another reminder that Jesus has come to save from death and he's come to rescue and he's come to cleanse and he's come to purify and he's come to, to alter our stories. Let me ask you this morning, if, if you've got a, some twisted stuff maybe in your family or some skeletons in your closet, I want to remind you that God is greater that while Tamar, for instance, did wrong, she was also, she had done wrong to her. She was cast off by her family. She was oppressed and she was marginalized. And Judah and his sons did wrong by her. And Jesus came to save both the hurt and the hurters. Right? Those who cause hurt and those that endure hurt. Jesus came to step into each of those situations. And this story reminds us of that. But not only her story, let's look at the story of Rahab. You see her on the list. Joshua chapter 2 tells us about the story of Rahab. She is one of the least likely people that you would ever see in the genealogy of the Messiah. She was a Canaanite, so she was a Gentile, and the Canaanites were enemies of the Israelites. The Canaanites were an idolatrous, wicked people, and these were the people that were occupying the land that were promised to the Jews, right, that they had to go in and run out, and, 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 and you had all these battles that take place with the Canaanites and the Israelites um, in the Old Testament. So how does a Gentile, idolatrous Ultimately, we find out in her story, prostitute end up in the genealogy of the Messiah. Well, when Israel was about to get ready to take the land of Canaan that God had given to them, Joshua, the leader of Israel at that time, sent spies to check out the situation in Canaan. They were almost busted, but Rahab discovered them and hid them and protected them, and she chose the people of God over her idolatrous people. And in return, during the battle, Israel spared her life and spared her family. And ultimately, she ends up converting. She ends up, she ends up marrying an Israelite, and she ends up the mother of Boaz, the husband of Ruth. Incredible story of transformation. And so Rahab reminds us that your past doesn't have to be your future. Uh, your present doesn't have to be your future. Your sin no longer has to be your identity. And that God sent Jesus not to avoid sinners, but to redeem sinners. And Jesus came to save even the enemies of God. And Christmas is good news 
for the enemies of God. It's good news for the sexually immoral. It's good news for adulterers. It's good news for prostitutes. It's good news for porn addicts. It's good news for people with dark stories because there's some dark stories in this genealogy in the Christmas story. How about Ruth? Ruth. We have a whole book about Ruth's story. Her story is so powerful and she was, ultimately we know she married Boaz and ends up here in the genealogy of Jesus. Ruth was uh, a Moabite and we're going to learn a little bit more about that in a minute, but she was, so she was also a Gentile. Her husband and her brother um, died and leaving her and her, excuse me, yeah, her and her sister-in-law, leaving them as widows and they were there with her mother-in-law, Naomi, and Naomi decides because of a famine in the land that they lived in that they would go back to Israel. But she tells them, you should go back to your people. You should go back to the Moabites. You should go back to your people and to your land. You're not tied to me anymore. And one of them says, you know what, I should. And she leaves. But Ruth says, no, 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 I'm going to go with you. And, I'm gonna, and, I, and I, your people are going to become my people. And she actually says this, your God's going to become my God. And so she goes and so she commits her life to Yahweh. She is radically transformed. She goes back and she meets this man named Boaz who ultimately redeems her. And we don't have time to get into all that, but Incredible story of redeeming that line and and the work he did as a kinsman redeemer. And so she marries Boaz and she ends up in the lineage of the Messiah. Just an incredible, incredible story. And Ruth is unlikely to be in this genealogy. She was not a part of the people of God. In fact, the fact that a Moabite at all is in this genealogy is interesting. When you go to Genesis 19 and you read about where they came from, it's, it's, it's shocking. A Moabite is in there at all. They descended from Moab, the son of Lot, the offspring of Lot and his daughter, when she conceived a child with him after she got him drunk so she could conceive a child. Are you getting the point yet? Like, this, this family tree's got a lot of crooked limbs and a lot of wilted leaves. It, it's, it's full of them. That's the pattern that we're seeing here is the grace of God on display. Ruth shows us that no matter how messed up your family history, God's greater. No matter how shattered your dreams are, God is greater. There's a place for you in the family of God, that God heals broken people and broken lives. And and then we get the story of a lady who's not even named. She's just given a title, the wife of Uriah. Now, why is she called the wife of Uriah? Because it's to remind us that David committed a horrible act when he had her husband, he committed adultery with her, and then he had her husband murdered to cover it up. This is Bathsheba, of course. But yet we see that God's greater than all our sin here in this story. When you go back to 2 Samuel 11, this infamous story of David and Bathsheba, while the men were away at war, David stayed back. Instead of doing what a king should do, he stayed back and wasn't where he should have been, and he spotted Uriah's wife taking a bath, and he had her brought to his quarters, and there he committed adultery with her. She gets pregnant. David has Uriah killed to cover up his sin. And then right here, right here, She and David are both in the genealogy of Jesus. And you're reminded, even in the way that it says, the wife of Uriah, Israel is reminded of this humiliating season in the life of Israel and one of their kings. You know, that baby that they conceived died. But David went on to take Bathsheba as his wife, and they would marry, and of course, and she would bear a son to David named Solomon. And Solomon would actually end up be the heir to the throne, be the king, and end up here in this legal line to the Messiah. 
See, God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that he would have a descendant on the throne, as we talked about last week, and ultimately one who would be forever on the throne. And we know that Solomon was a descendant of his that was on the throne, but the one that would rule forever would come through his line would be the Lord Jesus Christ. And despite David's unfaithfulness, God was faithful. David rebelled, God remained true. God's plan, we see in David's story and in Bathsheba's story, cannot be thwarted in grace triumphs. It's just an incredible picture of God's grace. That there's no scandal that can exclude you from the grace of God. You can't be scandalized to the point, or you can't enter into, by your own free will, into a scandal to the point that you can be robbed of the grace of God. The grace of God can be yours in Jesus. It's an incredible reminder for us of that. And then the last lady mentioned is Mary. Now, Mary, think about this. We've got Tamar, the girl who got pregnant through immorality with her father-in-law, Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute, Ruth, the Moabite widow, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who was pregnant by David, and then Mary, the virgin. When Mary becomes pregnant, it's actually quite scandalous. She's betrothed to Joseph but unwed to him. She's, she's supposed to be a virgin. Well, she is, we know. But Joseph didn't know at the time, and other people certainly didn't know, and angel, an angel has to come tell Joseph, right? And Mary was likely talked about and slandered and lied about. And, and all she did was obey God, the Bible tell, tells us, and find favor in his eyes. She was not sinless. Some would lead us to believe that. But Mary was not sinless. But she was a very godly young lady, the Bible tells us. But God having a plan for your life and you being a godly person and God working in and through your life does not mean your life's going to be easy and it doesn't mean it's not going to be filled with trials and troubles and suffering. And Mary's life and even the birth of Jesus is a reminder of that for us. Mary would have to flee Herod to protect her child. She would likely, obviously we said, be slandered, but she would grow up and watch her son be rejected and murdered from a human perspective. She had a difficult life found favor in the eyes of God, God working through her in incredible ways. And Mary reminds us that God works through people to accomplish his purposes. And that doesn't mean life will be easy, and that doesn't mean we won't suffer. But God wants to use us, and he wants to work in our life, and he wants to work through our lives. And all these women teach us things about the grace of God, but not just the women, the men on the list do as well. As we've already mentioned, David, Abraham lied to Pharaoh about his wife. He said she was his sister so that Pharaoh would not kill him to take his wife. He also didn't patiently wait on the Lord when the Lord promised him offspring. And he went and he took Hagar and he had a child with her named Ishmael because he refused to wait on God. So his, his, his story is littered with failure. How about Isaac, his son? He, he also, like his dad, father like son, lied about his wife being his sister. There's something in that family that they like. I don't know. That was like their go-to lie. Then there was Jacob. He deceived his father Isaac so that he could get his brother Esau's blessing that, that should have went to Esau, he, he deceives him so he can get it, right? So we see him as a deceiver, revealed as a uh, deceiver at one point in the scriptures. And then you see Judah, you know, besides the story of Tamar that we've already talked about with Judah, in Genesis 37, we read that while his brother Joseph was about to, to, to be murdered by his brothers, he intervenes, but he comes up with the grand plan of, let's sell him into slavery, right? So not exactly heroic. And then there's King Ahaz. King Ahaz, one of the, I guess you would say, evil kings in Israel's history. And 2 Kings 16 tells us he was a king who did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Old Testament's way of telling us he did a lot of bad stuff. But then it tells us he actually, he actually burned his son as an offering to an idol. 
This is a dark dude in the genealogy of Jesus. My point is all these people, all these people are broken, sinful people. It's not a list of the spiritually elite. God in his grace has sent Jesus to save sinners and he placed them in a genealogy of sinners because it's sinners that he came to redeem. God's grace is greater and God's purposes are greater and that's the point of the story. So when we look at this and we look at these names, we should walk away just amazed by the grace of God. So let me quickly give you four little handles for Christmas to think about on the grace of God from these names. Number one, God graciously brings outsiders in. That's what we see in this story. In all these names, God bringing outsiders in. When you look at the list, you see people like Rahab. You see Ruth, who were Gentiles. People who at one time stood outside of God's people. Even Mary would have been treated differently due to her becoming pregnant out of wedlock by anyone who, who didn't buy the whole virgin conception. Or in Deuteronomy 23, it tells us that the Moabites were not allowed into the assembly of the Lord. The assembly of the Lord was the formal worship gathering, okay? Kind of like this for us, or like the big festivals where they would have their big festivals and things like that. They had a list of people who were not allowed in the assembly because and a lot of that had to do with idolatry and, 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 and trying to set God's people apart as a different people. But one of the groups was the Moabites. And the reason they weren't allowed was because they had treated Israel unfavorably. At one point, they had some issues. It wasn't even because of where they came from that we talked about earlier with Lot. And so here, someone who wasn't even allowed into the assembly of the Lord is now in the lineage of the Messiah because Jesus is in the business of bringing outsiders in and making them insiders. That's what God does. He takes people far from God and brings them in. He takes enemies and makes them friends. Better yet, he makes them family. One of my favorite verses that illustrates this is 1 Peter 2.10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. If you're in Christ this morning, that verse is about you. It's about us. Jesus makes our nots and have nots, ours and haves. That's what he does in his grace. That's what the gospel does. Now, I remember... A year or two ago, being at a naturalization ceremony where they take people who aren't citizens and they take the oath, right? And then the judge declares them citizens and, and bangs the gavel. And man, it, right there in that moment, right? They go from not being citizens to having th the full rights of citizenship. Or if you were to go to an adoption ceremony, you might see that in a courtroom. And the judge, boom, you're in the family now. And all those are in powerful pictures, but even they pale in comparison to what God does in Christ when we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and we go from darkness to light. We go from outside the family of God to inside the family of God. We go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God, radically transformed. We go from enemies of God to friends of God. God in the gospel takes outsiders and makes us insiders. And whether you know it or not, without Christ, you're an outsider. We all are. Standing outside, looking in as enemies of God, needing to be brought in by the blood of Christ. And that's what Christmas is about. It's about God making people his family and bringing us in. And Christmas is a reminder that as the church, we need to be a people that pursue those that stand on the outside looking in. We need to pursue those far from God. We need to pursue those society looks over, it looks past and mistreats. Like Jesus, we need to care about those that society does not care about. It's about bringing outsiders in. God's grace does that. Secondly, God graciously makes sinners clean. That's the other reminder we get here from this genealogy. All the people on the list, like we've already said, were sinners, idolatrous, immoral People litter the list. And in Matthew 121, 
We read about Jesus and his birth. It says, she will bear a son. Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. Rahab, the Canaanite, Ruth, the Moabite, they show us God takes us from our idolatry and false worship and our sin, and he cleanses us, makes us new. He forgives us and washes us clean. You know, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 says it this way. Let me read it to you. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I mean, that that verse reveals to us the power of the gospel as revealed in Christ that God takes those of us, man, we were these things, but now we're washed, we're cleansed. He justifies us and he sanctifies us. He makes us new in Christmas. Christmas reminds us we all need to be washed and made clean. We all need to be made clean and right with God through Jesus. And anyone who comes to Jesus, no matter the sin, can be washed, cleansed, forgiven, sanctified, justified, it says, in the name of Christ by the Spirit of God. And Christmas reminds believers that we have a message of hope for the sinner. Uh, that, that you know people who, who are on the list, just like you were on the list, and they too are not too far to be reached by the grace of God. Christmas is a reminder for us that we need to be taking that gospel to people, the gospel that says that God graciously makes sinners clean. Thirdly, God graciously heals broken hearts and lives. You know, when I look at the life of Tamar, for instance, I see someone whose life and heart were broken. She was looked over, neglected. She certainly did something deceitful and sinful, but she was also sinned against. And I see that with Ruth, right? She, she lost her husband, relocated uh, due to famine. She, her life was just, it, 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 it was very broken. She didn't know what she was going to do, right? I mean, you just went through hurt, went through suffering. And, and I'm reminded when I see these names that Jesus came to heal broken hearts and he came to heal broken lives. And our God is a God who can reset our lives, rebuild our lives. He doesn't just cleanse us, he transforms us. He heals us. He mends us. Some healing we only we know we only experience in eternity. We get that. But God is always working to mend us and to make us new and to restore us. I love what Psalm 147.3 says about people who are experiencing brokenness. It says he heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. God is in the business of healing the brokenhearted. God is in the business of binding up the wounds. And Christmas reminds us that God does this, that no matter what you're going through this morning, no matter what you've suffered, no matter what suffering you may have even caused, God loves you, cares about you, and you can know him and you can know his presence today. I mean, Jesus is God with us. You can can know the presence of God in your life today. You can know spiritual healing in your heart, in your mind, and in your life. And for the church, it reminds us that we need to be a church for the hurting and a church for the broken. That the church should be the one place on earth that a hurting person knows they can find love and they can find hope and they can find friendship and they can find healing. We're to be the city on a hill, the light of the world that Jesus called us to be. We need to be a beacon of hope for hurting people. Every church should be that. And finally, it reminds us this about the grace of God, that God chooses to graciously work through people. 
for his glory. As messy as it is, <laughs> as difficult as we can be, that's just the way God's chosen to do things. He, he works in us and he works through us. And Mary, man, she reminds us of that, right? I mean, we see how God worked through her. Luke one thirty eight. here was her response. When she found out what was going to happen in her life and what was going on in her life, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. <laughs> Mary shows us a picture of a willing and humble servant. Her story reminds us that being God's servant sometimes means suffering, sometimes it means slander, sometimes it means suffering. Being highly favored doesn't mean always being honored in this world. But it reminds us that God works through the lives of people. Did you know that he wants to work in your life and he wants to work in my life and whatever's going on in your life right now, one thing I can know is true, God wants to work in you and God wants to work through you. You say, well, how do I I experience that? Well, you have to yield your life to him. It's like Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. If, If we want to be used by God, if we want God to work in and through our lives, then we have to, like Mary, put ourselves in a position where we just say, I'm a servant. Uh, God work in me. God, God work through me. I, I want to cooperate with what God wants to do in and through my life. God likes to work through willing people, people that say, Lord, use me. And Christmas reminds us of that, that God does and will work through people, and he'll work through you, and he'll work through me. And we need to be yielding our lives to him. We need to say, like Mary, behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. In just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And as we move to do that, let us remember that Christmas is about how God in his grace has sent his son to save sinners. That by grace through faith, we can experience that salvation. That because of Jesus, those who are, who are outside can be brought inside to God's family. And because of Jesus, sinners, like we all are, can be washed and made clean. That because of Jesus, those whose lives and whose hearts are broken can experience healing and mending. And, and that all of us can experience God working in and through our lives for his glory. The, the grace of God and the genealogy of Jesus reminds us of these things. And if you have not experienced God's transforming grace through Jesus, let me just tell you, man, no matter what you've done, I'm, I'm pretty sure there's people on the list that can top you. And that God can, God, God is still in the business of transforming lives and transforming hearts. And that the baby who was born to Mary and who was laid in a manger and all the stuff that we celebrate this time, you grew up to be a man who lived a sinless life in your place, that went and died on a cross for your sin, that bled and died so you and I can experience this forgiveness, and that rose from the dead in victory because Christmas doesn't end in defeat. It it ends in hope. It ends in victory. And that if we will turn away from our sin and embrace Christ as who Matthew says he is as the Christ, as the anointed one, as the Messiah, as the king, and who he reveals him to be, the Savior who saves people from their sins. If you'll embrace him as that in your life today, you can experience God's grace. God's grace, and you can be brought in, and and you can be cleansed, and and you can be mended and healed and transformed, and, and you can experience God working in and through your life and in your family and all those things because of what Jesus has done. So, if you've not done that, we always want to extend that offer to you. And here in just a moment, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. And if I can pray with you or for you, I'd love to do that. But I want to give you the opportunity, even right there where you're at, you can just call out to God and ask him to save you. If you'll turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus as Lord and as Savior, he'll do it right now. What a great way to usher in the Christmas week. As a believer, 
Let's take a moment here in just a moment as we pause and we pray and prepare our hearts to remember Christ's sacrifice as we take the Lord's Supper together, that Christmas ultimately points us to the cross. Let's pray.